Friday lunchtime lectures at the Open Data Institute. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, and welcome to this uh, lunchtime lecture from the ODI. It is not Friday uh, at the time at which we record this Friday lunchtime lecture. Uh, for logistical reasons, today's uh, lunchtime lecture has been pre-recorded and I, as well as a few ODI colleagues, are the stand-in for you, the audience, today. Uh, but I'm really, really, really happy that we've made uh, the time and that we found a, a good a chance to have uh, Ashley Farley uh, talk to us today about open research. Ashley is Program Officer of Knowledge and Research Services and the lead of the Open Access team at the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. And uh, we are welcoming Ashley today to talk about making harmful habits in research history. Ashley, the floor is yours. Great. Thank you so much. And thank you very much for the opportunity. I greatly appreciate it. Okay. So before we begin, I want to start with a bit of a disclaimer. So a little bit about myself. My career has been spent in libraries, both academic and public, helping people access the knowledge they need to make their lives better. Uh, so that's often the perspective that shapes my, my thinking. I also want to highlight that I work at a very privileged institution. So the Gates Foundation is uh, known to definitely have a lot of um, privilege and a lot of money to be able to do things, which is great for us. But just want to highlight that that's not the case with all other funders or institutions. I also want to say that um, much of what follows can be uh, generalization. So I like to say hashtag not all publishers. I will highlight uh, some of the great partners in the space doing really interesting things in open. And there are many nuances to, in this ecosystem. It's not meant to minimize anyone's work. But I do think having tough and critical conversations will make our ecosystem even stronger. Uh, there's copious amounts of information on all of these uh, topics I'll cover today. My goal is to spark kind of a high-level conversation, uh, hashtag citation probably needed. Um, and I want to say that my definition of open access and openness in this is quite uh, broad and also want to highlight that it's not all or nothing. Uh, there can be a spectrum of openness and we'll cover that in more detail. But really want to go over kind of what are the harmful habits that are are in kind of traditional publishing or that also can scale up to traditional research uh, that I think, you know, having a more open approach can really help solve. So this is kind of a, a quick overview of the traditional subscription publishing uh, that we, we know and have used for many, many years where institutions like the Gates Foundation or uh, taxpayer dollars go into uh, the research that's conducted. And then the authors and researchers um, submit a manuscript that they've written up their learnings. And then it goes through kind of this uh, non-transparent uh, peer review process is either accepted for or, or rejected, and the process starts all over again. And then authors sign away their copyright, publish behind a paywall, and then the rest of the world has to pay to purchase it or seek permission to get any sort of reuse. And I think there's a, uh, you know, we've seen, especially during the pandemic, that this kind of traditional system is not fit for purpose for, I think, the kind of uh, technology that we have at our disposal and just kind of how we work now as a global research um, uh, ecosystem. I want to specifically call out copyright is kind of a, a core part of the traditional system. 
So um, uh, the foundation, you know, recently, well, we joined in 2018 Coalition S and recently launched the Plan S policies in 2021. And one component of that very much focuses on, you know, open licensing and authors retaining copyright and in socializing that with grantee authors have seen that it's very much become just such a standard practice to sign away copyright uh, without really understanding the implications or reading the, the fine print on those copyright transfer agreements. It's very similar to your I downloading an app. We just want to use it. We accept the terms and conditions and we go on. Um, but there's, you know, implications for that. And, and in the research publishing ecosystem, it's um, kind of losing control of that work uh, and, and giving it away for free to a company that then, um, you know, will make money off of it. So, Focusing a lot on open licenses, that's been a core part of our, our open access policy. Uh, we've seen very little evidence of misuse of CC by license. Of course, this can differ by discipline. We're very much focused on, on global health and global development. Um, and then you have to essentially you know, pay journals to free your research and to make it so they can uh, build upon it. So many publishers working in the open access space um, or to have an open access option is uh, typically comes with an article processing charge, uh, which can be quite cost prohibited uh, for, for authors uh, globally. Uh, so there's been a lot more discussion around kind of that. And I'll touch on, on bad business models later as well. Um, and it's kind of interesting to see kind of who owns what. So we, there's been some recent estimates of the peer review volunteer time and how much money that generates for publishers. Um, and these are this is work that's you know funded by private and taxpayer dollars. Uh, so it's very interesting to see kind of where where is that value add at the, in the publishing or curation ecosystem um, that would then garner having full copyright. And so that's why rights retention strategy was created by the coalition as a way to uh, really highlight that authors should retain their copyright. Um, but we're still seeing some publishers react to that by what I call, call uh, holding copyright hostage. And so if you've gone through kind of the full uh, arduous process of publishing your work, uh, you're going to want to get it done and out there. And if at the last stage uh, you either have to sign away copyright or take your work elsewhere, um, most will just want to sign it over. And, and so that's um, something that we've been really discussing about how, how can we change that dynamic and, and keep, have authors keep their, their work and how powerful that can be. Um, so the next habits that, that follow really are kind of components of the larger uh, knowledge sharing ecosystem as it is right now. And gatekeeping is one I really wanted to highlight. So I see kind of a lot of needless gatekeeping in this space, which I find really interesting. Um, uh, so it kind of happens on a, a spectrum of whether or not you really require expertise uh, in order to be able to uh, be part of the kind of knowledge ecosystem. Uh, so we see and hear from some authors that they don't feel the need to be open or want to be open because there's very few people that could understand their work. Um, and so we try to push back on that, that, you know, especially uh, in this day and age, it's very hard to, I think, know whether there would be a researcher somewhere else in the world that would be able to understand and benefit from that work. So we don't want this kind of requirement of expertise to be able to read and participate in research um, 
be a reason to not be open or to have that information be available. And then on the other side, we see a lot of also ignoring expertise. So, um, you know, not acknowledging a lot of the lived experiences of, of people working in the space. I think a lot about librarians and data curators that maybe didn't go through kind of traditional academia route or have PhDs, but have a lot of knowledge and are a great resource and should be part of the conversation um, about openness and the curation of knowledge. And something that's a little, little different, but I think very similar around gatekeeping or embargo periods, uh, so especially with um, our open access policy, we, we've placed an emphasis on the immediacy of the information so that there aren't um, periods of time in which those who can't afford to access the information right away have to wait. Uh, I think especially during a pandemic, we can see why that would be quite harmful. And uh, with an eye towards equity, that's a real issue. We want to make sure everyone can access the information as soon as it's ready to be shared. And we also don't want to force others to use legal means uh, like Sci-Hub to be able to access that information. So trying to, you know, think about the whole uh, process and um, how authors choose to publish their work can have a downstream effect of whether or not others can access it uh, without having to, you know, pay or have a large barrier of access or use illegal means just to be able to participate in research. Faulty metrics. So this is something that comes up as one of the biggest obstacles to changing this research ecosystem and making it more open and collaborative is incentive system. So I think many probably know that it's quite um, competitive within academia uh, to get a tenure, to get grant funding. And so we're trying to shift this culture away for reliance on perverse incentive system. Um, uh, to make it more equitable and and to really focus on the intrinsic value of the work itself and maybe not where it's uh, published. Um, there's a, it's been interesting to see the research that's being done on promotion review and tenure and how a lot of these kind of incentives aren't explicitly written down, but are definitely in the fabric of the, the culture. Uh, but the discussion is growing and we're seeing a lot of funders that are signaling a shift in, in what counts and, and how um, they evaluate uh, potential uh, grantees. And I think that's, that's really important. We need to get the institutions more on board to help shift those incentives uh, more quickly. Uh, there's, I think, less than, in one study, there's less than 2% of uh, job openings mentioned any sort of kind of openness or collaboration uh, within the work. And, and that's a big, big problem, but we are seeing, we are seeing this start to change. And so that'll help alleviate a lot of the pressure on the publish and perish system. Uh, so I think you know, we see there's uh, continued pressure to publish papers, uh, just be able to add to the kind of citations, add to resumes, uh, and that shouldn't be, I think, one of the, the first reasons why we want to share information. And it creates uh, definitely an over overload of, of information. And now even niche disciplines can't keep up with reading uh, the current literature. I think we see a bit of what's known as the salami publishing effect, where something could be, you know, one article is then turned into 10. 
And the system just incentivizes more and more publishing. And that also adds pressure and cost to the overall system. Uh, I think we've seen a lot of discussion lately about how peer review is definitely feeling the effects of that. Um, so I, I almost want to see like a slow movement of, of publishing. And I know there's been some discussions in groups of, you know, what if we, um, you know, only required publishing one paper a year in a lab, what would that look like? Or uh, some funders are shifting and asking only for, you know, what are your top five most proud papers that you want to share to kind of change that perception of uh, more publishing equaling more uh, work and more impact. Habit number four, so bad business models. Uh, so it's very interesting that, you know, when we talk about shift in research culture, uh, business also, business models also become a part of that conversation, uh, whether we want it to or not. I wanted to highlight that open access doesn't happen, have to equate to expensive APCs. There are uh, other business models out there that uh, don't require reader or um, author to, to pay fees, and these are often called a diamond model. Uh, also, APCs don't have to be astronomical. Uh, so when we talk about kind of what is the true cost of publishing, there's been some research uh, out there, which I think is, is important. We're trying to call for more transparency around pricing, just to better understand. I'm sure if anyone's active on Twitter, they saw the recent um, recent video making fun of the large APC that Nature now has to publish open access. Uh, but we know that, that a lot of that is due to the uh, prestige of the brand. And that's what we're really paying for. So I think funders and researchers, we have to think, is that uh, the best way to use our, our funds? It's, but it's important to call out that I think li libraries have always Born the expense. So to authors, it often seems that it's been free forever in publishing. And now when faced with open access fees, it gives kind of open access a bad taste. Um, but it's it's always cost someone. And I think that's important. Um, and then you know, it's becoming harder and harder for library budgets to be able to sustain the subscription prices. And I find it interesting, and this isn't the case for all journals, of course, there are journals that do release content um, uh, after a certain amount of time, but there are others that, you know, paywall uh, articles in perpetuity. And it's always it interesting to kind of stumble across those articles from, you know, early 1900s that uh, are still behind a paywall or even older. Um, and it makes you wonder what point have we covered the cost of creating and archiving that article to when it can be open for anyone uh, to, to access? And then I want to touch briefly on hybrid models and how they aren't the solution. So part of Plan S is, uh, you know, we're no longer supporting the fees for hybrid journals. And those are journals that still get the subscription revenue coming in from all the institutions that subscribe to them. And then they're also getting the open access fees from authors and funders and institutions to make articles open access. But there's often a little offsetting in that, uh, which has a phenomenon called double dipping um, and it's, it's also often the most expensive open access option and was meant to be a temporary solution to kind of uh, transition journals to being fully open access. And that hasn't happened. 
in the 20 years or so that the model has been around. And so the coalition as funders are really um, pushing to, to flip that model to uh, full open access. Wasted resources. So here's an example of uh, some of the data sharing pain points that we are documenting at the foundation. Uh, so this, this has been part of our FAIR data working group, which has been around for a few years. And um, we're trying to take an enterprise-wide look at data sharing. So typically this happens um, you know, through some of our, our grant agreement language. Uh, we have a global access clause, which uh, has the intent of ensuring, you know, whatever kind of outputs or products are created from our funded developments that they're uh, accessible to, um, especially the, the target demographics that we are working on improving the lives of uh, or making sure things are available in lower middle income countries. But it often kind of lacks the... Um, the prescriptive nature needed to be able to execute on such uh, a clause or intent. Uh, so program staff are often kind of left to navigating the data sharing and management world uh, on their own. And so we cataloged a couple of examples. And this one is you know, interesting where it comes down to being a lot of, did you email the right person to ask for access to the data? Or who knows where it is? Or who knows what policy applies? And who knows what that policy actually means and how to communicate that to the researchers? So there's often a lot of back and forth and a lot of kind of time lag into um, getting that information and making sure it's discoverable. And oftentimes, you know, we sometimes end up with data sets that are just sitting in email boxes or on some server. Um, and so we've really been having a, uh, a targeted project to improve upon the, this enterprise-wide. Uh, and so, you know, it's often with data sharing, it's not a one-size-fits-all, of course, but I think we have a good uh, process in place to really at least improve, um, you know, how we structure our grants and how our grantees understand expectations around the downstream sharing of outputs and how can we better track those outputs um, more holistically. And so we have ma a mapped out vision where we're using, you know, identifiers, we're leveraging our grant systems, uh, we're helping support our grantees publishing data sets and using repositories and a lot of the already great external infrastructure that's there that they may not be aware of. Um, so that's that's kind of our, our work in progress and a big dream of how do we take this kind of, uh, you know, murky back and forth of, of data sharing and trying to figure out where um, outputs and assets live and um, make it much more automatic and have an easier way to share externally. So in all the, the habits that I, I described um, that I think are harmful to how we conduct research uh, and share knowledge, I really do think that there's an open solution for them. And if, like I said before, it doesn't have to be all or, or nothing in openness. And I uh, try to um, you know, talk with grantees now about how openness doesn't have to be always you are giving something away, but more in, in having a collaborative nature that you can get things back as well to help with your research by having open practices. Uh, I'd really love to see us transcend above kind of the print legacy model and leverage uh, current and future technologies and how we, we store and share information. I do believe that kind of the journal article um, 
artifact is is outdated and would love to see more interesting dynamic ways of, of uh, leveraging technology to share information. And I'll talk about the Gates Open Research Model, which I think is a great example in a little bit. Uh, I'd love to see more of a focus on collaboration versus competition and openness, I think, would be an important part of that and building the trust in uh, sharing data between uh, collaborators and then producing knowledge in a way that's easier to understand, build upon, and share. So I, I, I love the discussions around, uh, you know, journals that have like lay summaries or uh, kind of knowledge translation. Like, how do we make it easier for that information to be digested that we're not writing to just a specific um, academic audience or that we're not, you know, also forcing, I think, everything to be in, in English in a certain language. And so... Um, changing that will be will be important. Uh, yeah, again, transparency in the publishing process to build trust. I'm I'm a huge fan of open peer review. I'm going to talk a little bit more about that next. I think openness often can honor the invisible labor in knowledge ecosystems. So if we you know have more transparency, we're naming peer reviewers. We're naming. Uh, those uh, that you know are, are part of the whole research ecosystem but might not typically get that kind of credit. So I think data curators, librarians. Um, I've been focusing a lot more on how we can actually live our equity principles and values uh, through our our publishing and data sharing work. Um, and then yeah, again, highlighting that authors should remain in control of the work and keep their copyright. So the movement towards openness is quite strong, and I um, combined a bunch of different stakeholders within this ecosystem who are doing very interesting and innovative things and uh, are often taking risks to really live the values that they have with uh, open uh, research, and I think that's very important to highlight. So definitely recommend if you get a chance to check out some of these different funders groups and publishers and tools that are helping openness become the norm. Uh, I want to touch on specifically kind of what I've learned about open access through uh, managing a policy at the foundation. Uh, as unfun as policy can be, it really does bring about behavior change. Uh, and we've gotten the attention of different stakeholders, not just researchers themselves, but you know, publishers uh, to show that this is, these are our principles and this is what um, we are doing to actualize them. Uh, again, open access doesn't have to equate to expensive publishing or low quality. There's still a lot of myths out there or that it lacks peer review. Um, and I hope that we learn from the pandemic. So I think in the, the beginning, we saw a lot of collaboration, uh, publishers taking down paywalls, information uh, flowing through through to anyone who needed access to it. And already as we enter in sadly year three, uh, we started seeing those paywalls come back up. Um, and I worry that we are already kind of reverting back to the traditional system. And there are many other uh, you know, pressing challenges that we face in the world uh, that could benefit from having that kind of openness and, and collaboration to solve those issues. Uh, I definitely learned that most publishers are unlikely to give up control. However, uh, they, they rely on the research community to exist. And I think that's important when authors are making choices in where they publish and whether or not they, they keep copyright. Um, yeah. And that, that those those that research has importance and power, and they should uh, leverage that. 
And the importance of partnering with publishers and vendors whose missions, values, and actions align with your own. That's something we've been thinking a lot more uh, in the foundation and making sure uh, that we do due diligence on, on choosing those partnerships. So in switching gears just a little bit to technology and how that um, uh, can lead to more openness and, and change. And I think something we need to overhaul in, in how we share information, whether it's publications or data sets. Uh, Gates Open Research is a, a fully open post-peer review, um, post-peer review, post-publication peer-reviewed platform that we've been running since 2016. It is built uh, by F1000, but it's been a really good experience for us to offer something to our grantees to publish in, a, I think, a very innovative and different way. Uh, it was really important during the pandemic when we we're thinking about, you know, the rapidity of being able to share information. I think it alleviates a lot of the barriers and bad habits that we've seen previously. Uh, so like journal cascading or shopping, you know, you pick to publish here, it's going to be published here. We're not rejecting things out of scope or novelty, uh, which I think is a practice that can be harmful for, for science. Uh, there will be no impact factor for the platform. Uh, it makes a linkage between the preprint and any downstream versions. Um, most journals have a lack of versioning, which I think is a really important technology. It would be great to, to have in order to address uh, corrections, concerns, um, uh, just updating an article instead of publishing a whole new one. So it helps with that kind of information overload. and You get a better picture of the whole research ecosystem. And then a lack of data sharing. So it's a core to the platform that the data is shared, the underlying data to article is shared as well. And we've seen some really robust um, data sets shared uh, and just a lot of great descriptors in the data availability statement of like what is not available, maybe due to ethical or privacy concerns, but at least you know where the data came from, where it could be requested, what permissions go with it. Uh, all of that I think is, is really critical to understanding um, a research article. So this is how it works. Uh, so yeah, so there's peer review after publication. So uh, there is an initial check of quality um, checking that the data set is, is available. That usually takes around seven days and then everything is posted on the site. And then the open peer review and commenting can uh, happen and it can um, you know, take as, as long or as not as needed, which I think is great. So articles aren't held up from being released. And then there'll be article revisions. All of this is very uh, clear. So here's what an article looks like. Of course, has the standard uses data ability to cite it, uh, and it spells out the different versions. And so there's, there's always clarity on what you're, what you're looking at and what the process has been. And it uh, has fully transparent peer review. You can also cite the peer review reports, and they, can, they are named as well, and you can name multiple people. So often if you know, postdocs, early career researchers have been working on the peer review as well, they can actually get credit for it, which I think is great. And we end up seeing some really constructive and robust uh, peer review reports. And I think this is just great transparency to have because science and research is very much a conversation. And this allows the conversation to be um, viewed by the reader, which I think also establishes more, more trust and more understanding of the work. And then there is a, a referee rating. So 
the minimal requirements for indexing. So for it to be indexed on other um, PubMed, um, all the kind of downstream indexing places where you would find research, uh, there are minimal requirements. And if they aren't met, it kind of lives and dies on the platform, which I think is also uh, important. So it isn't then kind of shopped around to uh, journals that will uh, publish it. And then as a reader at that journal, you don't know the back story and the process um, and maybe any of the issues that were raised in the peer review reports. So this is much more transparent. Uh, yeah. Uh, so what can you do? So again, want to really highlight retain your rights or push back on copyright transfer agreements to get what you need. You can negotiate them. Um, uh, search for and use open content. So that can help uh, in making open access the norm. It's just using those resources, uh, using tools that can help surface openly available content like unpaywall uh, and helping promote those within your community will be very important. Uh, you can boycott doing work for for-profits. Uh, I listed a couple of the projects out there that um, really promote that kind of boycotting cost of knowledge project, like the I won't be bullied in a bad science project, and to understand that your time and expertise is powerful and valuable, uh, so use it well. And then share as early as often as you can, so foster an, an environment of openness, collaboration, and sharing where you can and kind of be the change that you want to see. And I will stop sharing there and always happy to yeah, answer any questions. You are muted. Muted. Of course, I was muted. <laughs> I was saying uh, thank you so much, Ashley, for this presentation. Yes. Really, really, uh, really thought provoking really, and really inspiring. And I wanted to start with a first question on the um, the open research platform that you showed us uh, towards the end of your, your presentation. And it seemed to me that you, and you, I'm using this as a plural, obviously, but have put in quite a lot of process innovation into it, things like versioning, things like peer review after publishing. And I was wondering whether those are things, and that's going to be a bit perhaps of a nuanced question, but are those things that open research enables or are those things that you're adding as things that may help make the case for open research as in look if you've got open research you get all those things or is it something that cascades naturally for having from having open research thanks that's a great question i i think it's a, a little of both and it's it's hard to say because we ha we don't have a lot of models like this uh, and I don't think it's it's caught on, and and we are often you know asked for those great examples and case studies of where openness really made a difference versus when it was closed. But it's so hard to have a control for that. Um, so yeah, so I think I think it's, it would be a little of of both. I think a lot of the innovations are reacting to kind of those. Uh, harmful habits, honestly, of, you know, journal shopping, uh, for versioning. I think that really came around because it is so hard typically to tell what changes have been made. I and mean, we know that that research is a process and it's going to change over time. Um, but typically, we've just always published a new article, a new article, a new article. And those could be open and that could be great. But 
um, I think that's that's lacking more of the open research, larger picture there. And mm-hmm. that's that's where the platform kind of um, innovations, I think, really come into play of what are the things that we need to know to understand the research better and communicate it better. And openness is parts of that. And sometimes sometimes not. But um, yeah, I and mean, we honestly, I think I start talking less about open as being critical to these changes and the need for change and just just the change that we need itself that we have a lot of evidence of what's not working right now and especially things like closed peer review are are really struggling Mm -hmm. and so what are ways to mitigate for that Um, and I think that the kind of not shopping around not sending the same manuscript to three different publishers to get you know three different sets of peer reviews. There's a lot of waste on the ecosystem. Thank you, Ashley. Um, another facet of your talk, which really struck me was that uh, how systematically you showed that those bad habits that you were talking about were not just with one part of the ecosystem. You basically said, you know, those bad habits are distributed. Everyone is stuck in a system that yes. is really difficult to change. Um, and, you know, you, you, you made a plea at the end for researchers to you know, shift the behavior. Obviously, you're, 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 you're thinking also as a funder. I was wondering who else in your opinion, has the key, is, is one of the constituents of this ecosystem having the key to unlocking the system? Or is it basically, as I think you, you were suggesting just earlier, we need to change the whole system little by little, but none of them has quite the key? Yeah, that's, yes, that's a great question. I, I think <laughs> I personally would love to see a bit more radical action from libraries but again it's hard because libraries have been paying for this system for many many years now there's been a serial crisis since i've been working in libraries you know almost 15 years now um so that's that's not been alleviated but libraries want to be able to serve their function very well and support their community so it's very hard to say we're gonna and libraries have been doing it like we're not going to have big deals anymore we're going to cancel this and and we'll see you know what happens and we'll try to get the information still to you as a researcher as much as possible they want researchers to be on board with their library you know mission and work but that's hard we haven't seen a lot of examples of that happening i mean if if libraries really canceled big deals and then didn't enter into other ones like i'm not a big fan of transformative arrangements as they exist now um but that's a new and ongoing conversation um yeah so but i think you know i especially would like to see funders and libraries work more closely together uh that's hard in the u.s we don't quite have the kind of infrastructure that i see uh throughout europe where there are closer collaborations between funding um, bodies and, and libraries. And I think that's, that's really important. Um, but yeah, I, I sometimes wonder, I'm like, if the general public too, if we just knew more about how this knowledge system is currently working, would there be more kind of outrage and pushback? I mean, we see mm-hmm. that happening for patient communities. So I think that's another group that, um, you know, is trying to be more vocal about their need for information or the fact that, you know, a lot of um, people sign up to clinical trials, uh, hoping that their, you know, their contribution changes things. And I think we have to honor that, that more. 
Um, but you're right. No, it's not every, it's not just one or two players in the system. It's a big, it's a big wheel of change. Thank you. Yeah, I, I, I wasn't, well, I wasn't really expecting you to say, well, this, that's easy. <laughs> just, just change the X and everything will fall into place. But that's, thank you for your, wish. For your analysis. <laughs> exactly. Um, I wanted to get into perhaps the, the slightly, um, well, slightly unfair parts of my questions is, is that you, I think you made a really, really good case for how those um, behaviors and habits are are harmful and problematic, and you and you make and you make a great great case for for open research. But then again, I would I would say that, and and I feel like we 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 should address in our in our kind of discussion some of the typical uh, arguments to say, well, yeah, that's great, open research might be okay, but in ca- in some cases they are not. And um, one of the one of the cases that that came up in our kind of uh, research about this uh, th- this um, lunchtime lecture was um, the case, for instance, of a uh, you know, let's say a, a, a big ride-sharing uh, company that uh, knew that they were being investigated, and they and and they because they knew it gave them a step and it gave them the ability to tweak things so that they would be able to change uh, the outcome of that research. And I was wondering whether. Is that is that a, a a non-issue overall in research, or are there actually cases where you'd say, yes, some types of research are probably best kept in in closed environments? What what's the spectrum there? Yes, yeah, that's a great question, and and I will say through my open access journey, I I have seen that there there is what's the term um, I think it's used frequently is uh, open as possible, closed as necessary. And I think that's a great way to put it. Uh, I I think we've, you know, overall in a lot of the work that we do, especially at the foundation, there's less of a a risk and we've gone through the proper processes like IBR to make sure we have consent to share data. So that's a very important aspect, but there, no, there are, there are examples where I think openness could be, um, could be potentially harmful for that work. One that I thought was interesting, I heard about was more of um, studying um, animals that are potential, had the potential to be poached. So tracking, you know, the, the data on where those uh, endangered species are, like what if a poacher was able to access that information and then used it uh, for nefarious purposes? I mean, it's definitely a concern. I don't think we've, I don't know if we've had enough openness in some areas to be able to tell if there's uh, potential downside effects that we haven't seen. Uh, but, and, and I also will say this is not my strong area of expertise, but in more of the humanities and social sciences, I know there are a lot more concerns about, you know, having something be, you know, CC by so it can be translated or reworked. And I think there are valid concerns there. Uh, I just want to make sure that we don't, you know, take concerns and, change them into excuses and reasons not to do something versus trying to explore ways to do it responsibly. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Um, I, I'm, I'm actually uh, uh, collating questions from our small uh, ODI crowd that, as I was st- saying at the beginning, is a standing for the, the bigger crowd that will see this uh, when it when we broadcast it on, on Friday. And one of the questions for, from my colleague is saying, you know, this, this is really interesting. And you've got a, a call to action towards the end uh, of your presentation that, 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 but that might seem quite daunting. Retain your rights, boycott uh, doing work for profit. 
if um, if I were a budding researcher uh, looking for my first step towards op open research uh, and op and working towards that open access, what would what would you advise as my first easy or easyish step? Yeah, definitely. I think one easiest step especially for early careers, is to advocate for a better system. And that can include, you know, whatever modicum of open you want. Uh, but I think just messaging to the community that, you know, we want to see the system work better in the future, I think is important. Because I do hear a lot of uh, from um, our program staff and from uh, typically more senior career researchers that there's concerns of having such policies and how do they affect earlier career researchers that you know, need to publish in specific journals uh, in order to advance their career. And if policies around publishing affect that, what does that mean? And I, I understand that. And I think it's, it's really difficult and we don't want to put, you know, authors, um, in a bad position, but we're also never going to have any change unless we have the policies and try to push for that change. And so having, I think, the voice of those early career researchers to say, hey, guys, we would like to see a different system. Those in power can can hear that because um, I, I don't know kind of what that looks like now it you know there's definitely I hear the voices concerned and when I'm I ask to be able to hear it directly from those researchers that's often when the conversations go pretty pretty quiet and so I think if there's you know if the senior researchers and the in others and funders especially program staff hear from people working on those projects like hey we want to have more openness we don't want this to be such a risk to do we do see the value in it um, hopefully that'll foster conversations that will lead to meaningful change. So yeah, so I would say advocacy of, of seeing the new system would be great. Thank you. That's great. Um, I was thinking uh, of the audience for the ODS Lunchtime Lecture, and there will be a lot of them anyway, uh, a lot of us, uh, data people. And I was wondering, and, and do tell me if this is, already a complete uh, obvious thing but are there efforts to push for perhaps a baby step approach to say well we're not going to be um, liberating quote unquote the publications but uh, making sure the data is as open as possible is an easy step um, what's your opinion on the idea of separating the the rights and the publication and the accessibility of the data that, that is generated by the research versus the methodology the results the analysis that that comes in the papers is that useful or is that distraction that's a good question. I, I often have always thought if we can't get the publication, which I think, I don't remember who, but it's been referred to as like the advertisement of the project. Like if we can't get that to be openly available to start getting the underlying data and other components of it, that work is going to be even harder. So I, yeah, I, I struggle to see how it could be, I mean, I'm sure you know, with publishing, but I struggle to see how we could make the like data assets open, but then have the uh, kind of paper uh, closed. Um, yeah, but I don't think they have to be so mutually exclusive. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, that's that's interesting. Uh, one, one approach that we've taken, just because it's it's been really hard for us to get the the data to be shared in ways that you know, even if it's just the foundation accessing it, 
uh, as a funded, not even being openly mm. available to everyone. So we're really focusing now on robust data ability statements. So I think just knowing where something may be uh, stored mm. or generated or what can't be shared is really helpful for us to understand um, more of what these data outputs actually look like. We don't actually have a data policy or a data management plan, but it's something that we're we're working on integrating because uh, I think we we're definitely missing that in, in setting up our projects for success. So those things to be shared downstream. But I feel like too, in order to understand the data, you have to kind of have access to the methodology um, yeah. and protocols. Yeah, I, uh, without, yeah. The, without the without the context, I was thinking while I was asking the question. Without the context, having the data might be sometimes difficult. Uh, so yeah, I'm I, still I surprised that point. we peer review things without access to data. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I feel like that's an important part it, it, I, to yeah, understand. I would, I would yeah. Although you know the, the reality is that you know the whole access to data is 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 another uh, definitely another uh, area that requires quite a lot of work stewardship of data. Yes. Um, I've got one more question, but I just received one from one of uh, one of my colleagues, which is a really interesting one. In, in that, bad science has been used for quite a lot of disinformation. Um, I think the the uh, the example that was given to me is the uh, the 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 article and the damage that it created with uh, that wrongly linked um, uh, MMR vaccine and, and autism, for instance. Yeah. And the the question from from my colleague, which I think is an excellent one, is: Would you say that a more open process would have stopped that kind of article from a being published, b creating the outcomes that it created? Yes, that's an excellent question. I do think more transparency in the process could have helped. I, I think the more downstream effect of nefarious use, I think that is potential to happen, whether there's good or bad science behind it. And I think we've seen that during the pandemic. So that's, mm. I think, a broader, uh, you know, public health or, um, you know, making sure that we teach science and that's something here in the US we were having a struggle with uh, as far as, you know, that kind of basic science education that you, you have to um, communicate that science is a process that, you know, a standalone article uh, mm. may not be what you think it is the, uh, that we can draw a single, I think, conclusion on, on one paper um, uh, and that things do change. We do learn. I, with, with that paper though, the Wakefield paper, I, I worry too, that there's also, more of a, a political aspect behind it. And we have seen bad science get published because of those kind of political um, structures of, you know, who's the editor of the journal, you know, who's publishing. So I, I, transparency, I think, would help that. Um, um, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then again, I think, you know, more of a versioning control or, I mean, it took 10 years to get the paper retracted and I think it's still being cited because it's well there's many probably many reasons why it's still being cited but it's often hard to tell when something has been uh, retracted or if it's being cited because it's being refuted or supported. Yeah, I de definitely agree that's that's that was one of the things that when you talked about versioning thought you know, making research part of the web is, is really, really quite quite an important in, in innovation. 
I'm going to, uh, so I know you have a hard stop, so I'm going to try and finish. Yeah. And, and, that, and if that's okay, I'm going to finish with a slightly facetious uh, question for you, Ashley. And that is, you know, you've been working on this. You are clearly passionate. You're bringing to us quite a lot of evidence, quite a lot of pleas for, for change. I'm going to ask you as my last question, what is the one solution that people oversimplistically say, we just have to do X and why won't that work? Yeah, I think that would definitely be the career incentive change. So I hear a lot of either we just need to find the right, you know, metric to measure openness and that'll change everything. Or we just need to get promotion and tenure guidelines to change and be more open and that will uh, fix everything. <laughs> and I do think that's one of the biggest obstacles for sure, but I don't think that's going to solve, uh, especially for some of the, you know, the tech and infrastructure issues, the who pays for what and how much is it issue. Um, so that's, that's one that I would, I would think it would fit that. Better. Brilliant. Brilliant. Thank you, Ashley. Uh, I'll repeat, I've got this slide just in front of me. Uh, for anyone who wants to read more about this, your uh, Twitter handle is Ashley D. Farley and Gates Open Research is at gatesopenresearch.org. Um, I think this is the uh, last um, lunchtime mixture of a series, but I do encourage everyone uh, watching this, uh, this um, lecture and, and our conversation to keep an eye out on the Even Bright for the next series that will be uh, um, announced soon. And I'm finally want to thanking you uh, so much, Ashley, for, for joining us quite early in your morning. Thanks and for, for, for a great presentation. Thank, <laughs> Thank you. you. Pleasure. You've been listening to a Friday lunchtime lecture brought to you by the Open Data Institute.